Chapter Ten of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter Ten. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise shall preserve them. Great was the flutter into which the Adams family were thrown when, on one never to be forgotten evening, Hannah, in neat attire, presented herself with Mrs. Sayles' compliments, and would Miss Jenny come and take tea with her the next afternoon at six o'clock. Jenny's pink cheeks flushed into scarlet, and she turned to her mother in a bewilderment of delight. Mother, whatever shall I say? Say? Why, whatever you're a mind to, child, answered Mrs. Adams, trying hard not to look radiant with surprised delight. When I was a young thing like you, if I'd got invited to one of the handsomest houses in town, I'd have known what to say dreadful quick. But there's the factory, you know, Jenny said in troubled tone. I don't get home from there till quite a while after six. It was now Mr. Adams' turn to join the conclave. Never mind the factory, he said heartily. It's a pity you shouldn't have an afternoon now and then, as well as the best of them. Of course Mr. Sales will let you off when it's his lady who sends for you. I'll see him myself about it, and, my word for it, you needn't go to the factory tomorrow afternoon at all. Well, then, Jenny said, with her merry little laugh, you tell her, Hannah, that I'll be glad to come. And the moment Hannah departed, eager preparations commenced. There's that darn in your white dress, began the mother, that must be fixed. You get it, and I'll darn it right away. I'm more used to that kind of work than you are, and you can finish this shirt as well as not. Jenny brought the dress, but looked rueful over it. I don't believe I can go, after all, she said forlornly. This dress is dirtier than I had any notion of. I don't see how I got it so dirty. You don't think it is fit, do you, mother? Not without washing, of course, child. What a giddy thing you are. And it's torn zigzag, of course. Who ever saw a straight tear? But I can mend it, and I'll have it done up as fine as a fiddle by the time you get home tomorrow noon. Oh, mother, Jenny said, both charmed and conscience-stricken. But you have such an awful lot to do tomorrow. It ain't the first time I've had a lot to do. This mother answered, grim satisfaction in her tones, as she threaded a cambric needle and proceeded to do wonders with the zigzag tear. I'll have it ready, no danger of that. When I set out to do a thing, I always get it done. It takes your mother for that kind of work, or most any other, said the commonplace ignorant husband of twenty years standing, thereby bringing a flush to the worn and faded cheek of the hard-working wife. A word of commendation was still, after these twenty years of experience, the nicest thing the world had for her. Meantime, Mr. Adams had deserted his paper, and was fumbling over an old account book, adding up certain short columns of figures in an audible whisper, and presently he counted out seven very ragged-looking ten-cent pieces, and handed them, with a gratified smile, to Jenny. "'There,' he said triumphantly, "'I can spare that, and if you want a new ribbon, maybe there's enough.' Anyhow, that's the best I can do. Oh, father! And the shirt over which that young lady was bending slid to the floor, and she was at his side in an instant. I can do without a new ribbon, I can, truly, and I didn't expect a cent of money. A whole afternoon away from the factory is more than I expected, and I can do nicely without money. Take it, take it, said the gratified father, a gleam of satisfaction in his eyes. It was very nice to have his little sacrifice so warmly appreciated and so lovingly received. Some girls would have turned up their noses at it because it isn't more, he said to himself, but our Jenny isn't of that sort. 
so this family made their loving little sacrifices of labor and time and money, and felt grateful to the very tips of their fingers to Mrs. Sayles for her invitation. That lady, on her part, was very busy making arrangements for the entertainment of her guest. It chanced that on the particular afternoon in question, Mr. Tresevant was to be absent, attending a minister's meeting. The look of relief that overspread Mrs. Sayles' face when she first heard of this arrangement, and the little sigh in which she indulged, were too apparent to escape Dell's notice, and her hostess, mortified at herself for harboring such feelings, eagerly explained. You see, he is accustomed to such a different class of people, he would not know just what to say to her, and I'm afraid it might be embarrassing to both of them. No, Dell said mischievously, calling to mind the class of society that Lewiston necessarily furnished the fastidious gentleman. No, of course he is not accustomed to that class of people, and of course you are. Have spent your entire life among them. Oh, Abby, aren't you a bit of a hypocrite? I don't mean to be, Abby answered meekly enough. But, Dell, don't you think it is easier for ladies to accommodate themselves to circumstances than it is for gentlemen? Undoubtedly, Dell said, with the gravity of a judge. Just try Mrs. Tresevant's powers of accommodation, and see how beautifully she will prove your theory. Whereupon Mrs. Sales gathered her sewing materials about her, and merely saying in her usual gentle tone, When you get rid of this mood, Dell, and are ready to help me, come upstairs, immediately left the room. On her way upstairs, she paused to think over this new idea. Mrs. Tresevant, just how would it suit Mrs. Tresevant's fancy to treat Jenny Adams? And would it be best to tell her something about the expected guest, or leave her to be received as Mrs. Tresevant's impulse should dictate? That lady's impulses were so variable that it did not seem safe to trust to them, and the result of this consultation was that she sought the study. Mrs. Tresevant was in her accustomed curled-lip attitude on the sofa, looking exceedingly sleepy. With a hesitation and embarrassment that she could not overcome, Mrs. Sales made known her errand. Mrs. Tresevant was gracious, expressed languid interest in the girl, and hoped that Mrs. Sales' notice of her would be productive of good. Though I think, she added, by way of encouragement, that class of people, as a general thing, are better aided by being let alone. Left in their own sphere, you know, without having high notions put in their heads. But, of course, you will be careful and judicious in your treatment of her. I suppose she will take her tea with Kate and Hannah? Why, no, said poor Mrs. Sales, with flushing cheeks. I have invited her to spend the afternoon with me. She is a member of our Sabbath school, you know. Well, my dear Mrs. Sales, so is Hannah, but you do not invite her to take tea with you. That is different, Mrs. Sales answered, with a little touch of dignity in her tone. Hannah lives in the house and enjoys taking her meals quietly with Kate. She is not degraded or ill-treated in not being invited to sit down with us at table. She has regular duties to perform at that time, which she engaged to do, and for which she receives payment. But this young girl is my guest for the afternoon, and I mean to treat her as such. Mrs. Tresevant shrugged her shoulders and laughed her soft little laugh. You and Miss Bronson are too much for me, she said. You live in the clouds, but a poor little earthworm like me cannot be expected to keep pace with you. You will have to write out my part and let me commit it to memory. What do you want me to do? Nothing, Mrs. Sales said, turning away, unless you like to come down to the parlor and get better acquainted with her. I am not in the least acquainted with her, never spoke to her in my life, and I presume she would be frightened out of her senses if I did. 
However, perhaps I'll come down if I get my nap out in time." Mrs. Sayles found her heart and spirits strangely ruffled by the interview, and felt compelled to flee to her own room and to her sure refuge for strength and comfort. When she came down half an hour afterward, looking as peaceful as the sunshine, she found Jenny Adams established comfortably in the back parlor, looking bewitchingly pretty in her crisp white dress, with a new pink ribbon at her throat, and her eyes dancing with pleasure and expectation. Dell, meantime, the wicked spirit gone out of her, was exerting herself to the utmost to make the young girl feel at home and happy. A white day was that in Jenny Adams' life. Both ladies exerted themselves to the utmost to render the young girl at ease and to entertain her royally. Baby Essie was in a condescending mood, and bestowed shy, sweet kisses with the tip of her soft little tongue, and displayed, with astonishing amiability, all her pretty baby accomplishments. Dell, at the piano, gave the young guest such a musical treat as others more favored than she rarely enjoy. Mrs. Tresevant did not finish her nap in time for a descent to the parlors, and it was not until they were seated at the tea-table that she burst upon Jenny's astonished vision in the full glory of a white muslin overdress and a skirt of lavender poplin. Mr. Sayles was in full tide of cordial talk with his wife's guest when the interruption occurred, and had tact enough to continue it as soon as the introductions were over. So it was not for some moments that Mrs. Tresevant had an opportunity to exhibit any special friendliness. In the first lull that came, she turned her peculiar blue-black eyes on Jenny, and with that sort of a well-bred stare which seems to penetrate to the very tips of the stockings hidden under your well-buttoned boots, she said, "'You work in the mill, I believe?' "'Yes, ma'am,' Jenny said, coloring to the roots of her brown hair, and spattering the juice of her strawberries right and left in her startled confusion. Up to that time she had succeeded in appearing wonderfully at her ease, but those great searching eyes seemed to exercise a peculiar power over her. "'I suppose,' continued Mrs. Tresevant, in smooth flowing words, "'I suppose it is a very great treat to you to get away from work for an afternoon, and have a chance to see your employer's house?' Now be it known that there lurked in Jenny Adams' wicked little heart quite as much pride as throbbed beneath the fluted ruffles of her pastor's wife. Moreover, she was quick-witted to an unusual degree, and knew when she was being condescended to, and resented such condescension as proudly as though she did not work in a factory. So now she answered in a heat of blushing haughtiness and confusion, that she did not know as it was, she did not object to the factory, she was perfectly willing to work, in fact, enjoyed working. Well, Mrs. Tresevant said, she was glad to hear her say so. It showed a very proper spirit, and was certainly commendable. And it is impossible to convey to you any idea of the condescension with which these words were uttered. Poor Jenny felt as if the cream biscuit were suddenly burning her throat, and it is to be feared that her hostess felt not much better. Mrs. Tresevant, meantime, considering her duty accomplished, turned serenely to Mr. Sales and questioned, "'How many work-girls do you employ, Mr. Sales?' The only redeeming feature of her conduct being that she addressed not another word to Jenny during the remainder of the meal. Yet I protest to you that this little woman did not at this time mean to do any harm. She simply did not know how to be kind and helpful without being insufferably condescending. There are multitudes of women like her, who approach those occupying a lower social position than themselves, exactly as they would pat the shaggy head of a dog. There, Ponto, good dog, nice old fellow, and then are amazed at their want of success in trying to do good to that demoralized and unregenerate class of creatures 
who do the work of this world. A most uncomfortable meal it was the rest of the time. The great luscious strawberry that was split in two just at the time that Mrs. Tresevant began to bestow attention on her remained split and uneaten, and Jenny let the cake basket, with its tempting array, pass her with a silent shake of the head. Matters were not improved when they adjourned to the parlors. Jenny's happy time had vanished. She was ill at ease, felt out of place, and miserable. Her main desire was to get home. She even meditated making her escape and leaving Mr. Forbes in the lurch. She told herself that she was a fool for coming, that they were all a proud, hateful set. To complicate matters still more, callers began to arrive, and though Mrs. Sales introduced her gently and sweetly as Miss Jenny Adams, one of the members of my Bible class, even her fair face clouded over as the bell announced a fresh arrival, and there seemed no prospect of bridging over the chasm that she saw had been made between her pupil and herself. It was at this point that Dell, who had been sitting over by the south window, arose and crossed to Jenny's side. Bending over her chair, she said in low tones, Miss Adams, wouldn't you like to see Mrs. Sale's flowers? She has such beauties. The wisdom of the serpent must have been given to Dell just then to tempt her to preface her question with Miss Adams. To what girl of seventeen is not that dignified, respectful Miss put before her name a sweet and pleasant sound coming from the lips of one whom she considers her superior? Jenny glanced up with a quick, grateful smile. Yes, she said heartily, I should very much. Then let's you and I escape from this crowd and run over and see them. She has a Kayla that is absolutely wonderful. And talking in bright, familiar strain, she won the young girl with her through the back parlor, across a little hall, into a tiny room, alive with perfume and aglow with flowers. And Jenny forgot her wounded pride and her dignity and her sore-heartedness, and gave genuine little screams of delight over everything, for she was a true and loving worshipper of the green and blooming beauties. How they chatted over the lilies and the roses, and the great purple and pink and crimson fuchsias, who nodded at them from every corner. There were so many new ones to learn the names of, and presently Dell, with lavish hand, began to break off sprays of bloom here and there, and to say, These are for your mother. Mrs. Sale spoke of intending to send her a bouquet, and now that she is busy with collars, we will just make it ourselves. When they had been all around the little room, Dell dropped into a low seat in front of the rose stand, gathering up her dress to make room for Jenny, as she said, Let us sit down while we arrange this bouquet. Does your mother like mignonette? Oh, do you see that plant just at your left, with peculiar satiny leaves? That is a slip from mine. I brought it to Mrs. Sales. It is a very choice plant. I think a great deal of mine. Mr. Forbes brought it to me from a plant that his cousin got in Scotland. I'll slip mine again when I get home, and send it to you if you like. You know Mr. Forbes, do you not? You don't mean the Mr. Forbes that I know, do you? Jenny asked, flushing redder than the fuchsias she was holding. The one who was foreman in the factory? I mean him, yes. Didn't you know he was a friend of mine? I knew he thought a great deal of you. And I certainly think a great deal of him, Dell said gravely tying a cluster of purple blossoms against the white ones of her bouquet. I have reason to. He was a good friend to me at a time when I sadly needed earthly friends, and felt almost deserted. He is a noble young man, Miss Adams, a noble Christian. I knew him before he was a Christian, and I never saw such a change in any one. There is hardly a person whom I honor and respect more than I do him. What wonderful words were these, 
coming from the elegant Boston lady, of whose beauty and wealth Jenny had heard so much, concerning the foreman at the factory, and her opinion of Mr. Forbes went upward, despite the fact that it needed no elevation. Dell's next remark was offered in lower tone and with great gentleness. When you see such a character as his, doesn't it make you want to be a Christian? I don't know, Jenny answered softly, which was only a confused way of saying nothing, for in her heart she did know. Have you thought about this matter any? The voice lower and gentler than before. Yes, she had thought about it a great deal, more than she had any intention of owning. Thought about it at times very longingly since that evening walk with Jim Forbes, when he thought, to use his favorite phrase, that he made a muddle. So now she said very softly, almost under her breath, Some? I thought it must be, Dell answered her. I have felt such an interest in you, such a desire to see you a Christian, and Mrs. Sales, I know, has been feeling the same way. We are both praying for you. Won't you pray for yourself, Miss Adams? And Jenny, with her fingers pressed close over her eyes, so that the hot tears dropping from them might not be seen, said, very low, I'll try. Mrs. Sales sent for them, then. Mr. Forbes was waiting, could not spend the evening, and, as Jenny Adams said a silent good night to the closing flowers, there was born into her heart a resolve that shall color all her future life. I don't know whether I did any good, or whether, as Jim says, I made a great muddle, Dell said, half laughing, half tearful, as she tried to tell something of the talk in the plant room to Abby later in the evening when they were alone. I said very little, you see, but I prayed a great deal. We can leave her with Christ. There is no more blessed way, Abby said, with serene brow. At first I was greatly troubled. Nothing went as I had planned it should but presently it occurred to me that her Savior knew more about her and coveted her soul more than I did, and I left it with him. For my part, Dell said, nothing in my life went as I had planned it should. The Lord has taken great pains to show me that he can do his own work in his own way, and that when I want to help, I must let him lead. End of chapter 10 Recording by Tricia G.